Welcome to Old Fashioned Finance, the podcast that mixes cocktails and high finance. I'm your host, Jason Demland, and I am joined as always and in the future by my good friend and fellow money muddler, Caleb Frankert. Jason, can a podcast about finance be entertaining? Not without alcohol. Well, all right, let's mix it up. (laughs) Caleb! Jason, buddy, what's going on? Oh, it is a dismal, dreary day here in Ohio, uh, but we're we're forcing our spirits to be high. I'm glad to be with you. I'm glad to be recording a radio podcast, video (laughs) podcast, and uh, that's going to be all right. We're going we're gonna to make it. We're recording a program today. It was monsooning about 10 minutes ago. It was crazy how uh, how the rain was coming down sideways, which washed out the local farmer's market here about a block away. Kind of disappointing. <laughs> However, your dad, who sells beef there, was the reason I was going to go down there anyway. So the beef came to me. What was, uh, <laughs> what was nice about that is... Uh, <laughs> He employed your daughter. She's a heck of a salesman. So she came in. I wanted to buy a pound of beef and I walked away with two pounds of beef. And hopefully that uh, little tip went to uh, went to your daughter, salesman of the week. <laughs> I hope so. That beef, <laughs> Yes, I grew up on a farm. As some listeners might know, my dad still sells high quality farm raised beef. Um, it's very good. It's, go- it's good stuff. You will, you will not be disappointed, Caleb, in the quality of that ground beef. I've had a lot of it before. I've had ribeyes. I've been really, really, really happy with it. So my wife was going to come to the farmer's market. And I said, you know what? They called it. Your dad happened to pop in the office. So that was cool. Worked out really well. <laughs> Tempted by that seven pound brisket. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a little pricier. Uh, I have smoked several briskets that he has raised. They're awesome. They're great. Yeah. But the price tag might have might have slowed you down on that. A little bit. Well, that and the fact that I'm trying to get back on the wagon a little bit with uh, the dieting. I've been, today's Thursday that that we're recording this uh, episode, and uh, I've done a pretty good job so far this week. Well, we made drinks today here for the podcast, and it would explain why this one's hitting me a little bit faster. uh, Yeah, an empty stomach. (laughs) Yeah, I think I've had two string cheese sticks and uh, a yogurt today. So, boy. Uh, to our listeners uh, out there, make sure your belly is full of delicious <laughs> beef before you partake and imbibe uh, in these delicious cocktails that we talk about. That way, you can enjoy them responsibly. Yeah, this one especially if you use the ingredients that we used, right, Jason? Yeah, I'm I'm pumped to talk about uh, the cocktail of this week. Uh, so I, we can jump right into that, Caleb, uh, because that's, that's as good of a transition as we'll ever get, ever. So we shouldn't waste it. <laughs> I guess I was going to say, uh, this is an inconvenience continuation of an episode that we did a few weeks back a series if you will yes. um, called the manhattan project and yes. uh, again for our listeners who maybe didn't listen to that episode the manhattan project was kind of the start of rocket science here in the united states <laughs> back in the world war ii days we basically are highlighting the point that investing is not always rocket science so uh, there's a lot of cool manhattan variations out there that's the tie no, oh, yeah, to, to the uh, episodes. So we're going to do different variation of uh, different variations of Manhattans, as well as some investment topics that we think are insanely overcomplicated unnecessarily. Right. We got feedback that people wanted to hear us talk about investments, and we love Manhattans, so mm-hmm. they just go together like pie and ice cream, like, like lamb and tuna fish. 
Like, uh, <laughs> okay, all right. So, yeah, I'm excited to talk about the drink this week, which is a version of a Manhattan, uh, and mm-hmm. our investment topic today, uh, which is diversification. Uh, yeah. Both of them are awesome and uh, things that should not be neglected. Yeah, so the Vucare, th- this is funny. Uh, it-, it is a type of a Manhattan. It's uh, unlike diversification, which the thesis of this episode is that diversification is not rocket science. The Vucare is pretty complicated, isn't it? It's a fairly diversified drink. So that, <laughs> that kind <too>. of connects. <laughs> it is a little more complicated than some other drinks that we've made. This might hurt the pocketbook a little for those of you out there that have not fully stocked your liquor cabinet. There's a lot of ingredients. It's not it's not hard to make. The way that we'll describe it and the way we made it today uh, was fairly simple. It's really just getting all of these ingredients that can be uh-huh. probably I could see that being a challenge. It was a challenge for us. Yeah. Some of these things aren't readily available, so if you're out and about, keep your eyes peeled. But when you have enough for, I guess, enough of the ingredients that you can make this recipe, it is really worth making. It's a treat. I really like it. You and I first sampled one of these in Nashville a month or so back, probably two or three months back now. But Yeah, it's been a while, but when we, we had a great time. This is one of the highlights of that trip, I think, is uh, we went into a cocktail bar uh, that we took forever to find. We... As an aside to that, Caleb and I in Nashville, everyone, is like two <laughs> ex-rock and rollers visiting Broadway Street at night, the first day of summer, basically. It was a Memorial Day weekend, right? It was. And there yeah. were people everywhere and live music everywhere. And did Caleb and Jason think that was awesome? No. My no. agoraphobia kicked in and, and uh, I had anxiety and it was just too much happening all at once. Uh, we did not have a great time. But eventually we found a small like gastro pub that had a cool bar and it was quiet, which is mm-hmm. something I think we were desperate, desperate for. And uh, yeah. we, ch- we checked that out. We tested the barkeep. I think. Did we both order Manhattans? Yeah, we, we tested the barkeep with the Manhattan, which is kind of... Um, that, you know, if you're if you're out and about and someone claims to have great cocktails, you can't go wrong. If you ask somebody to make a Manhattan and it stinks, they're probably not very good at tending <laughs> bar. But if it's a great Manhattan, there's some real promise there. That The Manhattan or the Dirty Martini has been my test for bartenders. We both tested this, this bartender with the Manhattan. He met the challenge and exceeded it. And well, the next drink that... Uh, that came up, we we basically said, hey, man, that, that was great. I'll tell you what, you just make whatever you think, and we'll probably enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, and then he came out with a really awesome drink. Yeah. Uh, he, he said, hey, in this family of drinks, here's something that I really enjoy. It's called a Vucare. And uh, I wish I had that bartender's name to name drop him or that restaurant. I know it was even. Nick. Nick. But I don't know his na- his last name, yeah. Nick I, from Nashville. I have Nashville. to look at my bank statement to see what bar, uh, what that gastro <laughs> pub was that he worked at. But it was Nick, and he was a cool dude. And man, it hit the spot. He made a mean Manhattan, and the Vucare did not disappoint. So much to the point where when we got back, you were scrambling to find all the different ingredients for a Vucare. So, yeah, I made it my mission. Yeah, what are the ingredients to the Vucare, Jason? Yeah, you're going to have to collect yourself some rye whiskey, some cognac, some sweet vermouth, some Benedictine, some Angostura bitters, some Pechaud's bitters, and some garnishes. I recommend Luxardo cherries 
and lemon peel. Uh, but to make this drink, you combine all those in this arrangement, these proportions. This is this is the recipe. Uh, three quarters of an <laughs> ounce of rye whiskey, three quarters of an ounce of cognac, three quarters of an ounce sweet vermouth, one bar spoon of Benedictine, which is a, just a teaspoon, two dashes of Angostura bitters, two dashes of Pechaud's bitters, and one lemon peel for garnish, and a Luxardo cherry for garnish if you're feeling like the inventor of the drink himself. And then uh, there you have it. You can combine these into a mixing glass and make it and stir them like you would make a Manhattan with ice in the mixing glass and then strain it into a, a martini a martini glass, a cocktail glass. Uh, but Walter Bergeron, who was the inventor of it, he built it in a rocks glass, just like you would make an old fashioned. I liked mm-hmm. that idea. I think that's probably what Nick did since we had ours on the rocks. Yeah, he did. And so that's the way we d- we've done it for today's episode. Uh, we built it just that way. We, we poured the ingredients over ice in a rocks glass, stirred it gently so as not to make a gigantic mess. I still somehow managed to spill things all <laughs> over the table because uh, that's the way I do it. But that's the way we did it, man. And you've got yourself a Vu Carre. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a good drink. I like it a lot. It's definitely, you can tell it's not your, your typical run-of-the-mill Manhattan. There's a lot of extra stuff going on. I like it. It's a good change of pace. What did you think? I'm a huge fan. Obviously, I was blown away when we tried it the first time, and I wanted to emulate it since then. It took a long time for me to find Peychaud's bitters, mm-hmm. maybe just because I kept looking in the same two spots over and over again. <laughs> but uh, once we branched out of that and and hit up a liquor store that had some greater selection of bitters, we found some. It does make a difference. It's that Creole, I don't know, that the, the uh, Cajun ishness of those kinds of bitters you can taste a Uh little bit of a difference in there instead of just the angostura being orangey and and those regular bitters but man i love it it's got to be one of my favorite cocktails that i have ever had it has a lot to do with us doing a whole series on different variations of manhattans because i think it helped me realize how much i love the manhattan as a base Mm -hmm. cocktail and then all the riffs that people have on it uh, it's awesome. Yeah, I like it. You mentioned the the Creole aspect and the Peychaud bitters and the even the Benedictine. There, there is a little bit of a. I don't even want to say spiciness because I know that that comes from the rye, but there there is a little bit different flavor to this. And you don't want to skimp on the bitters uh, if you're making this drink. And, and the more and more that we do this, I think what we find is that I could just collect bitters. Quite honestly, uh, <laughs> the world of bitters is amazing. Someone who writes a lot about that is the David Wondrich. <laughs> he has something to say about this drink, doesn't he, Jason? I was trying to find what he had to say about the history of this drink, and it doesn't look like he wrote anything in depth. But he, on his Twitter account, there was a thread that he wrote about what he was doing that day, and he was making up a vucare. And he just says, "From the mm-hmm. Crescent City." courtesy of Walter Bergeron, who tended bar at the Hotel Monteleon before Hope Prohibition, took 13 years to rest his feet, and went back there after repeal, bringing with him the lovely Vu Carre. So, yeah, Walter Bergeron invented it at the famous Hotel Monteleon bar uh, called the Carousel Bar. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is, a, this is a New Orleans drink through and through. It turns out, Caleb, there's a lot of New Orleans drinks that are quite good and famous. It kind of makes sense. New Orleans yeah. is kind of known for its enjoying well, of life, <laughs> would you say? Yeah, I know, I know we've, got a, we've got a listener, I think a pretty dedicated listener that lives down in New Orleans. I would love to hear her feedback on this. She probably knows all about this, I would guess. We Reference back a, a few episodes ago when she said, this podcast is great. Basically, it mixes two of my favorite topics, finance and cocktails. 
She lives in New Orleans. She's seen this stuff. She's probably had a bunch of Vucarets. Serena, if you're out there, we'd love your feedback on this drink. Um, oh, you know who I'm yeah. talking about. <laughs> I bet she has. She's probably also enjoyed some Cesar, Sazeracs mm-hmm. as a drink. We had, we've had that. That that was my first time having one of those at the Aquifer cocktail yeah. bar, right? With you, that was eye opening, wasn't it? I didn't know a, such a cocktail existed, such a flavor combination. That's a good one. We're going to do an episode on that. It's not a type of Bene- Manhattan. But. It was Benedictine. The the Benedictine mm-hmm. in that really opened my eyes to just a whole new world of cocktails. Crazy. So they also have that. <laughs> they have the Hurricane. They have the Bourbon Street Hand Grenade, and probably a thousand others that we haven't talked about. But <laughs> about the Vucare, Caleb. Uh, Vucare uh-huh. is French, and for those of you out there listening to it that want to Google how to make one or the history of it yourself let's spell it because it's french it's v-i-e-u-x-c-a-r-r-e vucare vucare um and uh it's french for old square uh and old Hmm. square is really just referencing the famous french quarter in new orleans so that's what it's called the old square what did you call me you're an old square the french quarter (laughs) (laughs) but like i said it's invented at the carousel bar and the hotel monteleon And this is actually a bar that was built on the chassis of an antique merry-go-round in 1949. So so that was probably after the birth of this uh, drink, actually, because I think the drink came about in the 1930s after Prohibition was repealed. It got famous in the late 30s and then became uh, famous even more for being served at the Carousel Bar. So that's a cool bar. Uh, Lots of famous drinkers have drunk there. Uh, Truman Capote, (laughs) Tennessee Williams, uh, William Faulkner. And uh, so it's just a fun little story talking about the Vucare in Nolens. Yeah, it's a pretty cool drink. (laughs) Pretty cool. uh, Pretty cool history. Uh, Might be a reason to take a trip down to Nolens. I don't know. You up for that? I think there's lots of reasons. There's lots of reasons to go down to Nolens. Uh, and yeah, that's on the list for sure. Welcome to the finance part. <laughs> this is the finance part. Vucarets were fun. Now we're going to talk about diversification. What is it? What isn't it? And how is it applicable to you? And me, Joe Investor. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, thanks for that introduction, Joe. (laughs) Before we talk about what it is and what it is not, I want to talk about risks. Why does diversification, why is it even a thing we talk about? Well, it's a thing we talk about because risk exists. Mm. So there are two main types of risk that you face if you are investing your money. And those are the ones I want to talk about because they are the ones that have to deal with diversification. The two main types are Systematic risk, or it's also called market risk, and the other the other kind is unsystematic or diversifiable. So we have systematic risk and unsystematic risk. We have market risk and we have diversifiable risk. There's only two. Okay. I think I'm saying that in a confusing way. But talking about market risk, which is also known as systematic risk, this is the kind of risk that's associated with with every company that exists, with everyone out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some examples of, of uh, risks that impact the whole entire economy or business environment are inflation, exchange rates, political instability, uh, um, government policies and regulatory pressures, interest rates, war, that kind of stuff. 
uh, is systematic. It means it's system-wide. That's risk that you can't really diversify away from. Mm -hmm. You're just going to have to bear it. And when I talk about this with folks, this is the kind of risk I'm talking about where, because folks will, folks will say, I want to invest, but I want it to be safe. Well, to avoid, to avoid all systematic risk, you need to bury your money. Well, not even your money. We talked about it on the gold episode. Yeah. You need to invest in uh, guns and ammunition and dried food and chickens yeah. and MREs and yeah, that sort of thing. So you, the, the point is there's of the systematic or this market risk, you can't diversify away from it. So we're not talking about avoiding all risk when we talk about diversification. What we're talking about is avoiding diversifiable risk. Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of risk that's specific to to one company or or to one industry or sector of the economy. Um, or, or even asset class. Yeah, it can be. It, yeah, it can be as as uh, specific or, or kind of as broad because it could be a country. Yeah, uh, that is affected. It, That's a segment. And I when I say asset class, I mean, you know, cash is an asset class. Stocks are an asset class. Bonds are an asset class. Um, you know, so that's, I, I guess, asset classes goes in there too, because that could be a systematic or systemic, if you think about interest rates and the effect that that has on, uh, you know, bank accounts and CDs and things like that, that's a systematic risk for that asset mm -hmm. class. But yeah, I'm sorry to break your train of thought there, Jason. You, yeah. you had a good thing going, but. I did. I was rolling and I just, <laughs> uh, now we're going to talk about, I guess, whatever's on my mind, uh, the best guitar pick to use. Oh. Uh, one millimeter, the blue one. I'm a fan of the Dunlop Ultex. I don't think they still make it. No. No, we're talking about risk and uh, diversifying away from it. So if you have uh, all of your eggs in one basket, that's the common euphemism mm -hmm. of you know one stock. Like I am invested in Disney stock. That's all I'm invested in. Disney all the way. Disney to the moon. Mm -hmm. If you're only invested in Disney stock, well... If something happens at the co that company, like there's a big scandal or something, you are not diversified. You are consolidated. You are concentrated in one thing, one investment. You're you live and die with the success of Disney. Yeah, that means you're not diversified. And in that example, that's open to systematic risk, but it's not open to. I mean, it's also open to more than just systematic risk. That's open to both types of risk there, right? If you have everything yeah. in one company. Uh, sure, if the market just corrects 15%, you're probably going to feel that if you hold all Disney stock. Um, you're also going to feel that if the market goes up 20% and Disney doesn't know how to take care of business and they're a poorly run company for some reason. Right. Like Disney is effect was affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. Mm -hmm. So was everything else on the entire planet for the most part. That was a systematic risk. But to it, a lesser extent, it, maybe. Correct. Uh, maybe. I and mean, that depends on the the diversifiable aspects of it, the unsystematic portions of Disney's business, the things that um, are specific to it that were not affected. But it was affected. And you can't. My point is just that you can't avoid all risk. Mm -hmm. And some things affect everything. Like if there was an Armageddon, like if an asteroid was going to hit us, like in the movie yeah. Armageddon, uh, that's systematic and you can't diversify away from it but you can avoid the risk of that comes with just owning disney stock like if let's say cartoons are made illegal um or that's silly but <laughs> you know uh theme parks are, are they have a, a disaster at one of their theme parks that's specific to disney king's island and cedar point and 
you know, other theme parks, Legoland, they might be doing okay. Yeah. Um, and not all theme park based businesses go out because of one accident there. So that's that's kind of the primer on what we're setting up for. Diversification is is really just limiting your exposure to unsystematic risk by spreading around your exposure to many different sources. Uh, so if you lose out in one spot, uh, not everything goes down all at once. Uh, but it does it does have a drawback. The downside of diversification is that if Disney, let's uh, let's keep using the Disney example. Like I have no personal stake in Disney. This is just hypothetical, mm-hmm. so nobody get any ideas <laughs> about me giving a, a recommendation or a not recommendation on of what to do with Disney. But it's just. For some reason, it's on my mind. Maybe it's because you and I just talked about trying to make plans for our families to do that Disney trip. Yeah, uh, which would I think I just I think it'd be great. I'm I'm really looking forward to figuring out how to make it work. It's funny that we're talking about because we just had a budget episode. We have the financial infidelity episode and the balance sheet episode, (laughs) uh, and I have to use all that stuff in my own personal life. So Disney came up as one of the things that we're going to do in the next few years. So that's why it's on my mind. Wait, did you say in the next year? Few years. Oh, few, few years. years. Okay, Great. maybe in two years. Yeah. I, we'll see. Uh, we, we, it just depends on what kind of year we have financially. Come on, Biden administration. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, oh, that's what I was getting at. Is diversification has a downside. The downside of diversification is that you are not concentrated. So, if Disney does awesome, mm-hmm. like they come out with a new series of movies. That's better than the Marvel Cinematic Universe and Star Wars and Harry Potter. Yeah. All combined. Yeah. Let's say they hit on another Mandalorian type of a, a series no, or something. No, no? even more. Okay, let's think okay. let's 10X our thinking on this, Caleb. <laughs> it's like we haven't even we can't even comprehend it. It's so great. Rides come out of it. Costumes, merchandise. A new theme movies, park, maybe. A whole yeah. entire theme park. And their their stock shoots through the roof, and your investment in Disney takes or, off. Yeah, well, great example. Like they buy the Star Wars franchise. Yeah, something like that happens, but like on a huger scale, uh-huh, and okay. uh, it goes way up. Well, now you are diversified, and you don't own, you don't have all of your assets in Disney. So now your returns are not as good as they would have been if you were in Disney. So let's so think diversification. About this. Oh, go ahead. Well, Michael Kitsis always said, "I just wanted to say this one one liner." Sure, sure. And then you take it away. <laughs> Diversification means always having to say you're sorry. I like that. I've never heard him say that. but that. So I have another spin on that. Um, and I, I stole this from an advisor that I worked under years ago that probably stole this from somebody else. But he used to put it this way. <laughs> Diversification never made anybody rich, but it makes sure that people don't go broke every day. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great that's a great way to put it. Like you're not getting rich because you're diversified. Exactly. You're not you are not going to blow up and become mega rich because of your awesome diversification. But let's <laughs> take the example uh, for crying out loud. And I hate using individual companies and in real life examples. But let's say six months ago, you had a boatload of GameStop shares and they just blew up. And that's the only thing you had in your 401k and your IRA and your brokerage account, your Robin Hood and everything else would have worked out pretty good for you, right? On the other hand, you look at that and, and, and uh, okay, so I, this is maybe a little bit dangerous, but you look at the companies, their prospects long term and you go, I don't know, this valuation doesn't make a whole heck of a lot of sense. Th- same thing a lot of, with a lot of these meme stocks we talk about, but may- maybe this is a better example. You talked about Disney. So let's take Disney and Universal Studios and all, all those other competitors, okay? 
let's say you're all in on that entertainment business. If Disney doesn't hit on the next big Star Wars franchise or whatever, and it happens to be, let's say, Paramount, and, and you've got exposure to all of those companies, you're, you're going to benefit from the benefit because you're holding all of those different companies versus just holding one where you'd miss out. On the flip side, if you're all in on Paramount and Paramount gets the next big one, you you could be rich. I don't know. Um, so diversification, like you said, is spreading out your risk among various companies, it could be in one sector, but we're going to get even further into it as far as what true diversification is. Because I think when we get to the segment where we talk about what diversification is not, you and I would both agree that holding a bunch of stocks in the same sector is probably not diversification, correct? It's definitely not diversification. You're still concentrated in a sector. Just mm-hmm. like if you were only doing only buying United States-based com- companies, you're concentrated in the United States. It's the greatest country on earth, USA, all the way. <laughs> uh, but it's not diversified. You can't call it diversified even if you think it's the best place to be. You're not broadly diversified and and that's that's where you should be if you're trying to mitigate all risks. Now, and the United States is so much better than any other country out there. Sorry <laughs> to our international listeners that I don't have a problem with it as far as investments go. All, all three of you, there. we're sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, you're not diversified, even if you're in one sector, the entertainment sector. If you're all in technology, all your investments are technology-based. You're not diversified. You are at a disproportionate amount of risk than you probably should be for the amount of returns you're, you're going to get. Yeah, we saw a lot of people put everything into healthcare and pharmaceuticals over the last year. And in the short mm-hmm. term, that, I mean, ha- has worked out somewhat in their favor. Yeah. It's um, a lot riskier. It's yeah. a lot sexier. Maybe you will have a lot better returns. And diversification is not not an investment tactic, like you said, that's going to make you super rich. Yeah, but if you picked the company that came out with the vaccine first, and uh, I don't even, you know, I didn't pay a lot of attention to... Which company? I, I know my my brother in law. Well, two of them were really on top of all of the the develop, developments uh, with the vaccines and all that kind of stuff. And I think the thought was hit the um, you know hit the company that that strikes at first, and we should we should make a lot of money there. Um, that's great if you can hit it. If you happen to pick the wrong one, maybe not so much. But you know, like a time like the the, the whole COVID crisis, you know, we saw healthcare stocks do some amazing things in general. You know, we're talking for the most part when, when we're looking at diversification, we're looking at a long term investment strategy. Uh, and just like any of the episodes that we've we've talked about, any type of investment strategy, we're not speculating. Um, mm-hmm. We're looking for a long term uh, investing versus short term trading and speculation. So, yeah. And uh, so this is the Manhattan Project. This series is mostly dealing with investing, but on a personal finance level, the idea of diversification has lots of implications. We talked about uh, multiple streams of income. We talked about how most millionaires have multiple streams of income. And that is a way of diversifying your income. Uh, that is that is smart as well. You don't you don't put all your eggs in one basket that your company <laughs> is going to pay you all of you know, they're going to be your only source of income. And then or if you're like we're in a General Motors town where we're recording this yeah. And uh, I know in 2008 and nine, when uh, the Great Recession happened, lots of General Motors employees had all of their income from coming from General Motors. They had a yeah. pension with General Motors and they had all of their 401k in General Motors stock. Well, what happens to General Motors? 
They turned into government motors, and those That's right. GM bonds went away and were worth nothing, too. Yeah, so your, your stock tanks, your pension is restructured, and you maybe lost your job, too. That is, the, that is a uh, financial or a personal finance uh, equivalent kind of of, of being co- overly concentrated in one area. And I think that's a very, very practical example, Jason. You and I have both seen where, you know, we have a, a prospective client or, or a client who spent 30 or 35 years at a company. They love their job. They love the company that they're with. Maybe they have great stock employee stock options in their 401k and some other uh, avenues as well. And they're all in, um, you know, and they've built up a good retirement and you it's, it's kind of tough when you have a meeting with those folks and you say everything that you own is riding on one company, including mm-hmm. your income, your pension, all of that. Yeah. Uh, some of these companies that have, you know, a pension offset with uh, w- when you're looking at Social Security and things like that, everything is riding on one company. You might have the warm and fuzzies about that company because they gave you a great living. They gave you great career advancement and you just you felt good about that company the whole way through. I'm not trying to set any hard and fast rules, but I have a real problem, Jason, when we see folks who have more than 10% of their assets in one company. I don't care if it's their own company. <laughs> more than yeah. 10% is uh, way more highly concentrated than we think you ought to be. Yeah, because well, I, I could see an exception probably for a small business owner mm. as far as reinvesting their own money into that. That's probably a different... Well, sure. And we've talked about that before. Those risk meters are broken. <laughs> <laughs> Those are entrepreneurs, baby. They're they're getting after it. They don't they don't care. They'll be one hundred percent invested. But yeah. you're right. I think the ten percent rule for being concentrated in a position, and even like, I guess I haven't thought about this very much. But even a sector or an industry, yeah, uh, that's probably that's probably the max that you should be willing to do. I know as a rule of thumb, I use that with my clients when they want to do something like gold or silver or real estate. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm like, well, let's let's as long as it's under ten percent of your investable assets. We can still diversify enough of that risk for me to feel comfortable with us not not taking disproportionate losses in case something bad happens. Yeah. Uh, so I think you're right. I think 10% makes that's what makes me uncomfortable. And I think that's a good takeaway for folks. And we're talking about total assets, right? So right. Uh, that doesn't mean 10% of, of an IRA or something necessarily. I'm looking at total assets. I think that that's a real red flag number, 10%. But Again, we usually don't see a lot of folks in that 10% range either. We either see people that are really, really broadly diversified or they're way, way overweight in one company or one yeah. sector. And 10% is a far cry from where they're at. So Yeah, and that always tends to be with a company that you have a, a sentimental attachment to. Maybe you inherited mm-hmm. uh, stock in a company from a grandparent or, or something that maybe was on a board or you know, that sure. had a, had a good, you know, you're, you just feel sentimental about it for whatever reason. Uh, I see, I've seen that a lot. I, I look at it this way. You might fall in love with a sector and I get that. But again, you know, using that 10% rule can be really helpful. We saw this a lot before the 0809 fallout where stock pickers were ruling the day and maybe you liked the banking sector, right? So you went out and you bought Chase or something like that or Citigroup, let's say. Okay, so you might love financials, but putting all of your money into one company is not a good strategy. Really, this this is practical regardless of, you know, I'm looking at 2008, 2009, but in any market, I'm kind of a fundamental analysis kind of guy when it comes to picking stocks and things like that. You know, we don't pick individual stocks here, but we're looking at companies' balance sheets and income statements and, and the fundamentals, the strong 
uh, the, the hard data that you can get on a company to judge whether or not their stock is worth buying. And I have seen this, you've seen this over the course of our career. You might pick the right sector. You might even pick the company who's in the best financial shape with the best product Mm -hmm. and the sector takes off. And for whatever reason, your stock did not. Mm -hmm. Well, if you like the idea, you like the sector. The idea there really should be to diversify among different companies. Fundamental analysis, while I'm definitely on that side of the, the bandwagon, I guess, it doesn't always pan out that way. I remember years ago, a long time ago, looking at steel stocks, looking at the steel industry. And I did a lot of research and the company that I thought had the best balance sheet, the most cash on hand, the best compliance track record, all of these things, they were the shining star. The industry went crazy and this was the one left behind for whatever reason. Technical analysis and all that other kind of stuff got in the mix. There are a lot of people who fully subscribe to technical analysis, and maybe I'm getting too complicated here with this yeah. conversation. Uh, well, just a just quick ex- explainer on technical analysis. This is how I explain it. It's charts. charts. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Okay, cool. Yeah, charts. <laughs> Making investment decisions for your retirement and your family's future based on charts and, and trends. trends. Yeah. <laughs> Same. <laughs> <laughs> The idea there is to spread out the risk. I, I'm okay with really believing in an idea and, and wanting exposure to an industry or a sector, but you need to spread out your risk uh, because there are so many unforeseen circumstances. You're not on the board of these companies. You don't know what's going on internally. You don't know the things that could be popping up down the road that could wreck your investment. So the idea there is to spread out the risk. Mutual funds is a very basic way uh, of investing and spreading out your risk. And, you know, the average mutual fund might hold 250 or 300 companies. You might own a company that goes completely belly up and out of business for whatever reason and not even notice it. And the great thing about that is you can you can diversify among companies in a sector. You can diversify among companies in a market capitalization segment. So like really big companies, really small companies. Uh, or you can diversify in one fund across the entire stock market mm-hmm. and, and own bonds and stocks and big companies and small companies and tech companies and car companies and manufacturers and all of that. So that's an easy way to diversify. Yeah. And it, and it's a cheaper way to diversify for most, too. And that, that's probably a different episode, maybe a Manhattan oh, yeah. Project on how mutual Definitely. funds work. Yes. But I, I think we've talked about diversification and why it makes sense. The old adage of not having all your eggs in one basket We are certainly not proponents of keeping all of your eggs in one basket. We like them spread out all over the world among different companies, sectors, and things of that nature. So maybe we've beat that dead horse. I don't know. Hopefully we did a good job of explaining it. But Jason, let's let's take a minute to talk about what diversification is not. Because I think you and I have both run into this where a lot of folks think they're very diversified and come to find out they're not at all. So what are some common misconceptions as far as, um, you know, what what is not necessarily diversified, even though it might feel like we are? Yeah, I haven't really run into people that are like, I don't diversify. That's a bad thing. <laughs> you know, so most people are like, diversification is good. I can get behind that. Let's diversify. Right. And then they diversify all the wrong things. Mm-hmm. The num- number one thing that I see people diversifying is banks. <laughs> so, and it probably has something to do with FDIC insurance and maybe a misunderstanding of that. And if you have a whole lot of money mm-hmm. uh, in cash and you want to have in the banks, you should probably have it spread out among several different bank accounts. But I know average people like you and I, or mm-hmm. even more successful than you and I, 
that diversify. What? <laughs> they think they're diversified because they use a bunch of different banks. Uh-huh. That's not diversifying. All of those banks are banks. They're holding and cash, which is they're the all, same it's asset. It's all cash. Class. That's yeah. right. It's all the same asset. You're not diversified because you have CDs at bank one and bank <laughs> two and bank three and bank four. You're not diversified at all. Now, if we're really concerned about FDIC levels, we're talking about a lot of money. Um, yeah, $250,000 know, per depositor. There, There is a website out there I recommend listeners check out. I, I think it's an offshoot of FDIC. It's Eddie. I, I recommend people check out Eddie, E-D-I-E. And you can go in there and you can plug in your bank accounts, the titling, your beneficiaries and all that kind of stuff and actually see how much FDIC coverage you have. So just because you hit 250 at one institution doesn't actually mean that you're not covered. But going back to the episode, Whiskey Smash and all that cash, when we talked about how much cash is too much cash, well, gosh, if we're spreading money out around different <laughs> banks because of FDIC levels, we probably need to have a conversation. It's safe to say you have too much cash. Yeah, or you're uber rich, which we need to have that conversation anyway then. Yeah, there's probably better things you can do. <laughs> <laughs> probably. But yeah, it's funny. I know this This sounds a little bit ridiculous to you and I, and it might sound ridiculous to some of our listeners, but there's some numbers to go behind this here. Let's take a look at some of that uh, as far as yeah. multiple banks. According to uh, an article on GoBankingRates.com, it was published in 2018, but about 50% of Americans have only one bank account. That shouldn't surprise anybody. We jump up, though, to 28% have two banks that they use. Okay. You know, I would fall into this category. Yeah, me too. A lot of that has to do with employment and things like that over the years. I got my mortgage one place and my... Yeah. Well, we, you and I have worked at banks, so... Yeah, and you know, it's, you know, it's just hard to move bank, bank account accounts, too. Yeah. <laughs> 11% of folks have three bank accounts. All right. 7% of folks have four bank accounts, and 4% of Americans have more than five banks. Go- I keep saying bank accounts, but banks, banks that they utilize. So 4% have more than five banks that they Do you think that utilizing. counts? Does that count credit cards? As no. banking somewhere, like you have a Chase and a Bank of America and a Capital No, one. the website I was looking at, you mentioned mortgage, and I think really we're looking at deposit accounts, actually. Really? Which would be checking, savings, uh, money markets, CDs. Now, I realize, um, you know, a lot of times you'll see the online banks running those specials for, you know, high yield money markets and things like that. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, I don't think that it's out of the norm for somebody to maybe even separate their savings from their operating accounts. And, and that could be a discipline thing, too. Yeah. I know we have a, a bank that we use that we just half the time we forget about it. And, and that's just a savings account. We have a certain amount from our checks go into that account and we don't think about it. And, and then, you know, we check it once in a while and go, whoa, hey, that's kind of a forced savings mechanism. So that's not out of the norm, I guess. But what we do see a lot of times is the clients got CDs and money markets spread out over five or six different banks. And the reason is they're rolling CDs. They're hitting all the promotions. Bank A is offering 0.5% on their money market and bank B is offering 0.55% on their money market. And you're just recycling money and moving stuff around. So we see a lot of that. A lot of folks think that they're diversified because they're using different banks, but it's all FDIC insurance. It's all cash. That is not diversification. No, it seems like a lot of complication, though. I don't know. If this, is, if this is deposit accounts, these are shocking numbers that you gave. Because like you said, it is a pain to switch mm-hmm. banks. So you got to change where all your payments are coming out of, You know who's got your debit card, where you're writing checks from, where your direct deposits are going. So I get that. Like If you don't like a bank, you gradually move over. Sure. But if this is just deposit accounts... The fact that 
more than half of Americans enjoy working with more than one bank is really hard to believe <laughs> because it's a pain, it's man. It's a juggling act. And a lot of this is kind of like I said a, a minute ago, it's it's rate chasing. And when I worked yeah. in the bank, I, I can remember uh, clients coming in to move money because the bank down the road was offering 0.05 more. And I'd say, now let's talk about how much of a hassle it is for you to close this account, <laughs> move an account, set up new direct deposit, set up new bill pay. I'm going to do the math for you right here. What's the rate? And we look at it and say, okay, so we're talking about $24 difference and it's only good yeah. for the next three months. You're going to be back here three months later because we're going to offer a better rate. That's just how, how it much works. time are you? Yeah, spending? your time <laughs> and effort is worth something. If you're doing that, if you find yourself playing the rate game, chasing CDs all over town, money markets, it is probably driving you crazy and the return is not worth it. It's probably money that you're not really banking on. Um, and what I saw oftentimes in the bank is people would do this for years and years and years. You'd be better off putting it in an index fund and letting it do its thing and, and actually yeah. making some money um, rather than looking at a net loss when you factor your time and effort for juggling and yeah. moving stuff around. So not diversification in my book. Yep. No, having multiple banks is not diversification for sure. That, that's a that's a really obvious one, I think, in our industry. The next one um, is pretty obvious too, and we see this uh, quite often. The idea of having multiple financial advisors, Jason. Multiple financial advisors is probably not diversification. This one, I think there could be a little more nuance on. That's why I said probably. Yeah. So in the in the case that you've got different investment guys doing maybe different investment strategies, I guess I could get why you'd have multiple of those. However, the problem with that is unless each guy or gal knows what the other one is doing, they're probably overlapping a ton. Bingo. Prob- you're probably not diversified at all. They're probably in the same exact allocations because there's that kind of thing going on in this industry where we all see what each other are doing. Yeah, and, and that's just, I think that's a really important point because what we're talking about is, is you might have two or three financial advisors because you think you're diversifying and because advisor A doesn't know what advisor B or advisor C is doing or that they're even in the picture, they're doing the best that they can with the information that they have. And mm-hmm. advisor B is doing the same thing because they don't know about A or C. And advisor C is doing the same thing because they don't know about A or B. And advisor D sold them an annuity because they needed to get paid. <laughs> and they did that with another insurance company because that was diversification. Wrong. but the moral of the story is you might use multiple financial advisors thinking you're diversified and what you end up doing unfortunately is actually doubling down or tripling down on risk that you already have and overlapping like you said before you could be less diversified by using uh, multiple advisors now going back to the nuance there could be advisors that specialize in one thing or another and it it might make sense but everybody needs to be on the same page because we're talking about one financial plan. Yeah, exactly. I think you hit on it. One financial plan. I could see why you would diversify your financial advisors into segments of, you know, expertise. Like I've got this guy is the portfolio manager. That's my financial advisor that does my investments. Mm -hmm. This guy is my financial advisor that helps me with taxes. And sometimes this is straight up just a broker, an investment broker, and then a CPA. And, Mm -hmm. you know, and then you have your legal team helping you with the legal aspects of finance. Those kinds of financial advisors 
What we try to do here is is real financial planning where we look at everything. I would have no problem really working with another advisor sure. for some client because it's a lot like the uh, the healthcare analogy where you're getting a second opinion. And actually the psychology, I just read this, the psychology of investors or people that need financial help, they like having multiple people agree with them. And the same is true when they're getting a surgery. You feel better when three different specialists say you need to repair your shoulder. And uh, I think that that kind of carries over. So I could see why people would diversify that way. But like you said, the key is there's one plan. They -hmm. all have to be on the same page. Instead, what we see oftentimes is three different investment guys who are competing against each other. Where, yeah. And this isn't a commercial for our, our firm here. I think we kind of try to look at it as jump in here if this sounds wrong, but we try to be the general practitioners in a way. There are specialists like tax specialists and estate specialists and things like that. But I know that I like to be the point man and I like to know what's going on. I like to direct traffic and be involved in all of it. I can't sell insurance. I can't give legal advice. I can't prepare tax returns at this point. <laughs> I can't Soon. defend you in tax court yet. Those types of things. But I am very involved in those aspects because it's really important. They're all important to the overall financial plan, which is the most important thing. So yeah, I, I get having specialists and things like that. But you said something else too. I think that's really important, getting a second opinion. I have never, ever... And this happens especially in the onboarding process with new clients. But when someone says, hey, you know, I, I really enjoyed our conversation. I want to get a second opinion. I say, great, get two or three. Yeah. Make sure that you really trust who you're working with when you decide to make that decision so that when you do, you have a trusted person who's going to be directing traffic and kind of choreographing the, the whole financial picture. But yeah, definitely, I don't have a problem bringing in specialists and things like that. But when you have, you know, you're pitting advisor A versus B versus C, and you're just looking every year to see who did, who, you know, who had the best performance, that's a recipe for disaster, especially if that advisor or, you know, if they know that that's what's going on, they might take silly risks and things like that so that they <laughs> have the best performance. If they're all doing that, you could really be doubling down on risk, tripling down on risk, and you might have a real disaster on your hands. Yeah. And I think that's all that kind of like investment performance competition between financial advisors is so overblown because yeah. the the amount of work, the amount of skill or talent, the gaps between advisors, unless somebody is just doing a dumb, bad job, they're not <laughs> diversifying and they are putting you in the most expensive things. And the, these advisors exist. They're just not good. So unless they are really bad advisor, it's going to be comparable and each of them are going to have better performance different years based on sure you know their preferences. It's just so overblown because to to think that one financial advisor has secret special magic formulas or insight or information or skills that makes him that much better than any other one. That's probably not realistic. So I I just think the whole that whole thing is overblown if that's why people are diversifying financial advisors is to do that and it's not going to work. Yeah. I, and maybe I'm overgeneralizing here, but I think it's more important that you have an advisor that knows you and your situation and your goals more than someone who's super savvy with picking stocks and things like that. Well, when we get into diversification and things like that, we know that allocation is the big player, the generator of most of the returns and the other 
you know, smaller percentage yeah. is based on the actual individual picking of funds and things like that. But to have someone who knows your situation in and out is more important than the guy that ekes out one or 2% more than somebody else in an investment portfolio at year because they're just a market wizard. Yeah. If they don't know your situation, they're not adding a lot of value to the plan. Investing is not rocket science and uh, there's, there's no super wizard rocket science financial no. advisors that are making it that way. You know, if there was, they probably wouldn't be doing this job. They'd be sipping on a cool drink on a warm beach somewhere uh, where it's not monsooning out like it is here. So, uh, <laughs> Jason, I, I think that we uh, we hit on a lot of things here today. Uh, why don't we go ahead and distill it down for our listeners? Yeah. One, what is diversification? And two, what it is not. And what it is, diversification is spreading out risk across various industries, sectors, or asset classes so that you're not tied disproportionately to one thing or company or market event. Yeah, right. Absolutely. The second point is diversification is not scattering assets all over town. That whole don't keep all your eggs in one basket um, just because they're all over town doesn't mean that they're not in the same stuff. So you may feel like you're diversified, but you might just have different names on statements. Right. Just because you have a bunch of different statements coming in doesn't mean that you're necessarily <laughs> diversified. So. Exactly. And we didn't talk about that that much in there, but I've seen that a lot too. Maybe that's where when I lost my train of thought, I was going. Just because you have Vanguard and Fidelity and BlackRock and all these different custodian names and all, the, all these other mutual fund names doesn't mean you're diversified either. They might all hold the exa- exact same thing. So yeah. Yeah. Make sure you're when you're not keeping all your eggs in one basket, you're really not keeping them all in the same basket. So if we had a call to action or some calls to action for our listeners, what what would you start with, Jason? I would tell people to consolidate where it makes sense. I'm a huge fan of simplicity. So mm-hmm. if, you, if you're diversifying just to make your life harder because you're using a billion <laughs> different banks or custodians or versions of a fund that all do the same exact thing, I would consolidate. It'll make life easier. So con- do that. That's the first thing I would do. Yeah, usually consolidation is simplification, and that's a, a, a good thing. The second point here, I would say, is to make sure that your assets are serving the primary goals. If all the players are truly on the same team, your team, and mm-hmm. everything that they are doing is serving your primary goals, the only way you can do that is if everybody who's on the team knows what's going on. Just make sure you're not working against yourself by employing different advisors, different banks, and that quasi diversification or not diversification that we talked about. Yeah. Now we know inevitably that some people are still going to have assets spread around between different financial advisors and things like that. So if you decide to do that, I guess I would have one recommendation and that is to make sure that your advisors know about those assets so that they're not doubling down on risk or overlapping where they shouldn't be. Yeah. That, that way you, uh, you don't run into tax issues too. Oh, yeah. We didn't even talk about how did we go an episode without me blowing up on taxes, Jason? Well, (laughs) next time, Caleb. Right now, it's time for questions straight up. Caleb, we had some technical difficulties with our speakeasy email. That's unfortunate. I, I know. I'm just. I want to learn to do, do to do the computer. I'm not doing it good. <laughs> okay. um, You're doing a great so, job. So from a month ago, we had oh. some a question come into the speakeasy from someone who has become one of our favorite listeners because they posted a picture 
of some Pappy Van Winkle bourbon. Oh, um, I know who you're talking about. Yeah. yeah, this this comes from Marcus, and I'll just I'll just read read the whole thing because it's some speakeasy plus a question. He says, "Recently discovered your podcast and have been listening to it all day. Currently five episodes in, though I have not made it through the entire series yet. I do have a question." How should someone go about finding and selecting a financial advisor like yourself? If this is discussed hmm. in an episode that I have not gotten to yet, please let me know. Keep up the content. I'm hooked. Thank you, Marcus. That's awesome. I'm glad you're hooked. Um, that really could be an episode in itself, how to go about choosing a financial advisor. We're pretty passionate about things to look out for, some uh, red flags and things like that. I, I guess maybe we should kick that down the road a little bit to uh, another episode. But I think, you know, one thing you can do is interview multiple financial advisors. Kind of like I mentioned earlier in the podcast, I am not afraid of second opinions because I'm pretty proud of the work that we do here. We stand behind it. We believe in what we do. And anybody else that feels that way uh, shouldn't feel um, threatened by having their their work looked at. I know in the past, I, I guess some of the most flattering things I've ever had clients say to me was someone asked to see my, my investment statements and our financial plan and I showed it to them. And we're talking about people who are looking to pull business away from us. And you know, when they looked at it, they said, gosh, this looks really good. It looks like this, this person really knows uh, your goals and they're doing a great job for you. Don't change anything. That's great. I feel like we do the same thing when we see other advisors work. Um, we're not going to tell you what, uh, what, you know, I, I guess what you want to hear or that, that you should pull money over just to, to move it away from somebody else and bring it to us. So find an honest advisor that you really click with, that you really jive with. Some of us will work for Pappy, actually. So, you know, that's... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Caleb's getting it. Just give us a call, Marcus. We'll tell you who to work with. <laughs> cool. That's a good question. Sorry if I rambled on, but I do think that that would be a good episode. We could get into the details of what to look out for, what to look for, what to stay away from. So yeah, I wrote about it in a couple blog posts a while ago. There are a lot of things to watch out for. I can tell you Certainly. the bad, the bad ones um, <laughs> for sure. Uh, yeah. Cool. Caleb. Let's get to the feedback. We just read out of the speakeasy, but did anything else come into the speakeasy this week? Yeah, we got another one. Kyle says, uh, and, and he's referencing to the financial infidelity episode, loving the new show. And I'm like, I get it, but there's no way we'll be doing one account. LMAO. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Hey, man, if, if you get it, that's the first step. You know, if your spouse is not on board, that's something you got to work on glad you're listening we appreciate it i know who this kyle is in particular and i'm flattered that you uh you listen to our, our podcast so hopefully you keep listening and take some value out of it heck yeah that's freaking awesome kyle thanks a lot for listening uh, folks i think it's that time so thanks for having a drink with us this week it's time to close out the tab if you have a question or a topic you want addressed on the old-fashioned finance podcast be sure to email us at speakeasy at oldfashionedfinance.com we would love to hear from you and don't forget to share the show with someone you love or just someone who needs a little money muddling themselves. You can stay up to date with all the latest actions by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Old Fashioned Finance is brought to you by Blue Jay Financial Group. That's bluejfg.com and produced by Pottery Studios. We've been your hosts, Jason and Caleb. Cheers. Cheers. 
Blue Jay Financial Group, LLC, Blue Jay, is a registered investment advisor registered with the state of Ohio. Registration does not imply a certain level of skill or training. The presence of this advertisement on this podcast shall not be directly or indirectly interpreted as a solicitation of investment advisory services to persons of another jurisdiction unless otherwise permitted by statute. Follow-up or individualized responses to consumers in a particular state by Blue Jay in the rendering of personalized investment advice for compensation shall not be made without first complying with jurisdiction requirements or pursuant to an applicable state exemption. All verbal and written content on this presentation is for information purposes only. Opinions expressed herein are solely those of Blue Jay, unless otherwise specifically cited. Material presented is believed to be from reliable sources and no representations are made by our firm as to other parties' informational accuracy or completeness. All information or ideas provided should be discussed in detail with an advisor, accountant, or legal counsel prior to implementation.